make sure that uh, that program doesn't contain controversial subjects and uh, you're not impolite to people. No, definitely not, Dad. You know me. I'm never, <laughs> ever controversial or yeah, impolite. Yeah, yeah, okay. Welcome to Conversations with your lovable, never pisses anyone off, ex-Muslim host, Ina, keeping it non-controversial. Hello and welcome to episode 40. This episode I've got the wonderful John Ronson here with me. What a treat. Someone who needs no introduction. He's recently recorded a podcast called The Butterfly Effect, which I enjoyed immensely. So hopefully we can chat a bit about that. Hi, John. Hey, how are you doing? I am excellent. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on with me here today. Oh, that's my pleasure. Thank you for um, having me. So the butterfly effect, it you know, it's it's been so fascinating to listen to it that I've listened to it a couple of times and can't stop telling everyone about it. Right. Well, thank you. It was really fun to make it. I, um, it was, you know, I spent like a year on and off with my producer, Lena, in, in the San Fernando Valley, just sort of hanging out with porn people and everybody was so nice and it was just a really fun you know once in a while it's good to do a story where everyone's nice and and, yeah. it, and, and it's not like a it's not like a you know hand grenade going off which is kind <laughs> of what my last book felt like my book about public shaming so, oh, yeah. so it was nice and it was very um it's it's weird buddy I mean, not not you, but a lot of people are so surprised that that um, the porn people in the butterfly effect come over is just so, you know, nice and caring and and ordinary and and the reason why people are surprised about that, I think, is because so many other people refuse to allow porn people to come over that way in their stories mm. because they, because everybody has an ideology and it just goes to show when you take ideology out of your storytelling, you can fill it with all these other things like like nuance and humanism and compassion. Absolutely. That's so well said. I mean Thank you. What what motivated you to to dive into this butterfly effect of online streaming and availability of porn mm-hmm. in that way? Well, I think it's there was a, f- a few a few things kind of motivated this story. I think probably the very first thing um was this little moment that happened when I was writing my public shaming book, so you've been publicly shamed. I, mm-hmm. I was interviewing this Gorka journalist called Sam Biddle, who had, who had recently kind of, you know, precipitated the, the sort of fall of a woman online. Justine Sacco, right? Yeah, so she kind of, you know, made a mistake by by telling this joke that came out a lot, a lot worse than she intended. Mm. And, and, and anyway, I was interviewing um, Sam Biddle about it, and, and I asked him how it felt to have kind of started this onslaught against her because you know he retweeted her tweet to his fifteen thousand followers, and then it was just like a kind of you know bolt of lightning. Mm-hmm. She became the, the worldwide number one trending topic on Twitter, and and he said it felt delicious. And then oh. he said. I know. And then he said something I thought even more interesting, which was, um, but I'm sure she's fine now. 
And it just made me think, like, on the internet, we don't want to think about the consequences of our actions. Um, we, we, want to, we want to do whatever we want and just not think about it. You know, the internet sort of feels for a lot of people like a sort of comedy zone. So, so that sort of gave me this like, vague idea to do something about consequences on the internet. Like, wouldn't it be good to do like a whole series which just looks at one consequence leading to another consequence that leads to another consequence mm. and you know where would you end up and and so then also when I was writing Shamed I was meeting this um porn star called Princess Donna um she's a producer with um the, you know kink I think mm-hmm. primarily um and I was meeting her in the lobby of the Chateau Marmont in Los Angeles and and the um I was staying there I don't stay there anymore because I think it's just full of hipster doofuses. But I was <laughs> and I was staying there, and it's too expensive. Um, but I was staying there that night, and so she came, you know, to meet me in the in the lobby. And the receptionist phoned me up and said, "Your guest is waiting for you in the lobby." So I went downstairs, and and everybody else in the lobby was dressed, you know. In, in exactly what I'm wearing now, which you can't see, but it's like kind of, you know, a grey hoodie and uh-huh. and just, you know, inconspicuous. And except for Donna, who was who who looks like this kind of, you know, peacock. Just, oh yes, just, I know. remember that part in that you described yeah. it really well. Yeah, because what happened then was that the reception the hotel receptionist was looking at her with a look of kind of disgust. And it made me think that, you know, some people are only comfortable with porn people when they're safely on their computer screens and not in the actual same room. So, again, so I thought, well, why don't I do something about porn and consequences? And then that it didn't take me very long then to to find my story, which was basically about the consequences of the tech takeover of the porn industry, Mm. how all these tech people you know, who'd never set foot on a porn set, just just took over the industry in this kind of coup. Um, and all the money went to them and all the money went away from the porn people. And so that's what the whole series is about, is what happened. Yeah. Took over porn. Yeah, and it's really interesting. Each sort of chapter explores a different aspect of it. And, uh, you know, even though I'm not in the porn industry, you tell it in such a relatable way that you could almost put yourself in those positions and right you know it's the same story that that's been happening in in you know journalism yeah. and music of course although fortunately one netflix one one really positive um aspect of of you know one kind of rare positive aspect of the trump era is that a lot of people are now paying for journalism again a lot of people thought you know fuck we need we, we, we need to fund good investigative yeah. journalism so so actually the money's beginning to go back into journalism now but but by and large you know tech people just stripped away so much you know so many industries and mm-hmm. so much culture and um porn you know nobody you know people sort of think about it in terms of music but nobody really cares much and and so nobody cares when it's porn because nobody cares about porn people yeah they don't really (laughs) want to think about it right yeah exactly they have to not care because if they cared it would make them feel bad about themselves yeah (laughs) um this there's this great line from this young woman that i interviewed for the show for the butterfly effect um who was a you know who watched porn and i i asked her 
you know, um, like like everybody else, you know, she was like a twelve year old watching porn on Pornhub because that's how the oh world's twelve year olds. Yeah. Oh, 12. everyone. It. Everyone, every twelve-year-old, um, except for you know, in the in countries like the countries where you came from, where um, where it's blocked. But you know, in every sort of but Western, believe me, people find their ways. Right, they absolutely. I, yeah, do. you got things like tunnel bear, right? So you can pretend you're in a different country to the yeah. country that you're in. I mean, okay. even YouTube was blocked in Pakistan for a while, right? They blocked the. Uh, breast cancer wikipedia page because breasts are you know i don't know sexual or something so right um wow um yeah so so um but anyway so i was talking to this girl and and i said did you ever kind of get so into it that you learned the names of the porn stars like oh there's Stoya, and she said no it's like when you kill a deer you don't name it because then you can't eat it oh um, so that's the thing it's like you know, she had to be incurious she had to be not curious about porn people and that's why you know the tech people get away with with all sorts of improprieties because yeah. nobody cares about porn people yeah. yeah and it's strange because for me personally like porn really fascinates and interests me in a in a sort of intellectual way but it doesn't I'm not really like a big time porn consumer in that in, in the way that it's intended to be uh consumed mm-hmm. so it's weird like I, I care about porn people and i care about these effects but i don't really care for porn that much if that makes any sense right why is it is it is it just sort of i don't know why is it because it's just so flat it's very yeah it's it doesn't do much for me. It's very like male oriented, I guess. I would need more backstory, something more realistic. Um, right. So porn just doesn't cut it. But I, but I'm fascinated by porn. I intend on doing like a series of uh, mini interviews with people where we talk about the kind of porn that they consume and sort of how it caricatures human sexuality in the way that it. You know, in mm. the way that it comes up, all the categories and how you talk about the search engine uh, optimization. Yes. Well, this just blew me away. Um, uh, so I was on the set of Stepdaughter Cheerleader Orgy. <laughs> uh, and, uh, uh, and I had a real kind of epiphany on that set. Um, so because the director sort of just happened to mention to me, Mike Quasar, that, you know, in the old days when he started doing porn, his films have names like um, Women of Influence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now, but now because of Pornhub, you know, because of the tech people, it's all, you know, it's all the part of the tech people. Um, it's become like a kind of arms race of search engine optimization. So yeah. anyone has to like fill their porn titles with, you know, with the most popular keywords. <laughs> and, and as a result, of course, the, you know, the content of the porn films get, are, are, you know, are mutated by this as well. So, uh, so the reason why he was shooting Stepdaughter Cheerleader Orgy is because those are the three most searched for keywords um <laughs> and and so i said to him you know is there uh, you know are there people who kind of fall through the cracks the keyword cracks because because they're just not keyword searchable mm-hmm. and he's like yes if you're a 25 year old adult film actress 
you can't get work because you're too old to be a teen and you're too young to be a MILF. Yeah, that's so strange and so it's like a purgatory of porn. <laughs> I know. You know, I gave this talk, yeah, like like this sort of hinterland, this sort of fallow years between teen and MILF. When you're just a regular attractive woman. Person. Yeah, yeah that, that, but a regular attractive woman, you can't, isn't, isn't a category on Pornhub. <laughs> uh, it's not keyword searchable, so you so you just can't do it. Um, I gave uh, I gave this talk not long ago in Arkansas at this college, and, uh, and during the Q and A, the conversation turned to this topic, and I said to the audience, uh, you know, and do you know how old you have to be now to be uh, categorised as a as a milf? And that people were shouting out like, you know. 38 you know 40 and the answer is 29 oh my gosh i know i know that's isn't this just the isn't it and isn't this just the internet all over like you know it's the as the kind of left-leaning political kind of um I kind of identify with the 25-year-old adult film matches because, you know, political discourse on Twitter is, is in, in its way all, you know, teen and milf, if you're not a kind of ter <laughs> terrifying alt-right lunatic or a kind of, you know, hysterical kind of far left. You just have to, like, sit there like... That, that's yeah. a hilarious way of looking at it. I've never thought about it like that before. It's wonderful. Um, yeah. yeah, so the lens of teen and MILF, I guess, can be applied all over the place. Yeah, it's the internet. It's like, you know, I think there's something really dark about the fact that every, um, I think every tech billionaire realizes at some point that the way to make money is to identify people's worst instincts and then give it back to them. Hmm. Um so, you know, I mean, that's how Fabian, who was the, you know, the kind of brains behind Pornhub, made, mm -hmm. made so much money. Um, and I think I think Twitter has come to realise that. I yeah. Mean, you know, they wouldn't have waited 10 years to, to, to do anything about abuse if they didn't realise that abuse was making them money. You know, yes. they're, they're never going to ban Trump, you know? Yes. They're never going to ban Trump. <laughs> yes, I, even though he violates the Twitter rules all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um. <laughs> But that would be funny if they did. No, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it's funny because when I, I I heard this woman talking about being on Twitter on your um, podcast on the butterfly effect about how she had to sort of play up the cheerful aspects of her life because her from a branding perspective. Um, mm. It did. She was told that it didn't look good because a porn star is like a fantasy, and you don't want that to be ruined by like her everyday, I, I guess, realities. Yeah, yeah. I know a, a lot of different producers, including producers who I, you know, met and know and like, um, said that to her. Like, don't complain about not getting enough work. Don't complain about being depressed or lonely oh. in Los Angeles. You know, you're a brand. Um, yeah. so, so I know, awful. Um, you know, there's a parallel universe where there's another Twitter where people are allowed to be themselves. And, you know, that parallel universe is actually our universe in, like, 2010. You know, that's what Twitter was like in 2010 yeah. or 2011. People could just, like, admit shameful secrets about themselves. And it was, a, it was such a great place. And then it just evolved into this place where everybody has to be like a brand yeah um, i mean i've tweeted something about breakfast cereal just like 
breakfast cereal and gotten hate tweets for it. <laughs> right. And, and the other, you know, at the very beginning of Twitter, I loved the fact that, like, you know, some of the people I followed had, you know, millions of followers, some had 100 followers, and, you know, all these different lives were, like, coming together on mm. my Twitter feed. And, and you know, people weren't, it wasn't performative at the beginning. People were just talking about that day something some tiny banal slice of life and mm-hmm. um, um, and I I thought that was great you know it was a place where you could just relax and be yourself and but I didn't god you know I didn't last very long yeah um, people people started to be criticized for being banal and then <laughs> you know newspapers would would write like who were the 10 greatest tweeters and it became a you know it became it a, a contest kind of, yeah yeah, the hierarchy and ugh. Well, and then you see people sort of becoming radicalized, if I can use that word, to just to achieve that feeling that they get from getting loads of retweets. So they'll say something mm-hmm. like edgier and edgier to attract yeah. that sort of audience. Yeah. And of course, you know, some of the stuff that's happening as a result of this is incredibly positive. I mean, you know, just look at the sexual harassment stuff that's been happening in the last couple of weeks with Harvey Weinstein and so on. Yeah. Um, you know, so so there's a there's you know, there's undoubtedly a very positive side of this, but but there's also a, a um you know complicated and troubling side of it. Of course, yeah. And that's the the type of public shaming that you talk about. Which is interesting mm. because there's sort of like a whole like group of media outlets that have evolved sort of to capitalize on this uh, outraged far left nut job sjw social justice warrior types when it's not that far left or outrageous so there's like people who will use this sort of don't shame people narrative which is perfectly right in the situations that you described like when it happened to justine it was completely wrong or even the scientist with the shirt uh, the shirt yeah. gate incident that was matt horrible taylor. yes matt taylor yeah. exactly um so yeah of course the social justice people can get out of hand but now there's like people saying that they don't want the people that are marching in charlottesville to face any social consequences right so like one of the mm. the crying nazi who became i guess famous because he was crying in a video um right. he got booted off a dating website and oh yeah, that's right. So then, this was perceived as the raw, you know, the really bad kind of public shaming, or like um, Bill O'Reilly being talked mm. about. The, that was then, oh, the far left has gone out of control. So it's strange how this thing is hijacked. This legitimate criticism is hijacked to protect, sort of. Yeah, I've I've really noticed that. Like. Um... Yes, it's been, I mean, you know what, you know, knowing what we know now about Trump's election, you, you, you see all of that starting in, in the last year of, of Obama, that, you know, things like Justine Sacco were propagandized, you know, yeah. massively by, by Breitbart and Infowars. Yeah, exactly. They, yeah, and, and, and you're right, I mean, you know, now you're, you've got the situation where, like, the pendulum is just swinging wildly and, yeah. and uh, you know and those of us who sort of feel 
you know, what I think is just like obviously right, which is that there's some shaming campaigns which are clearly, you know, um, appropriate, like shaming the people at Charlottesville, you know, stopping more neo-Nazi marches, mm. shaming, you know, sexual predators in Hollywood and so on. And then there's other ones where, you know, the punishment is, like, way disproportionate to the exactly, crime. Exactly, yeah. Um, but it's, 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 it's almost like both sides are are, you know, trying to stop people from taking a nuanced position. Yes, yes. There's a huge polarization and sort of the sensible positions are being drowned out right now. That's yeah. what it feels like. Yeah, they're like the 25-year-old adult film actress who's <laughs> oh, too, yeah. to be a and too young to be a male. That's, that's what's happening. Yeah, that's so true. We're in that, we're in that spot where we're not going to be heard mm-hmm. until we're MILFs. <laughs> Right. I know. I know. Um, I know. It's depressing. And it's sort of made worse by, like, you know, Trump saying about Charlottesville. The um, both sides thing, yeah. The both sides thing. Because now if you say, (laughs) (laughs) now if you're even slightly critical of some of the actions of the left, people are like, oh, both sides. Yeah. It's like Trump's fucking ruined. He's he's even ruined that. Yes. And actually, (laughs) you know, I'm pretty involved in like um, movement, atheism and secular activism so there's some characters that have sort of come in through the doorway of criticism of islam which i'm perfectly happy to do and you know when it's legitimate but when it turns into like muslims are like nazis they should be forcefully sterilized and you know you should you should be all deported or whatever then it's like i'm like "Eh, i don't know if that's a fair if that's a fair criticism Oh, there's such, I mean, you know, you know, of course, you know, there's there's such an obsession with that right now on the alt-right. Um, I personally, I, and, you know, I mean, I might be wrong about this, but I don't think I'm wrong. Uh, take someone like Alex Jones, who I've known on and off for like 20 years, mm-hmm. and I first spent time with Alex in the late 90s. Um, I just watched your documentary with him from the 90s today, actually. Right. Okay, well, fascinating. Yeah, I know that was a great adventure that was. But back then, Alex wasn't Islamophobic, and um, I, I don't think kind of Islamophobia crept into Infowars till I don't know, sort of twenty thirteen, twenty fourteen, and and then it kind of really shot up when you know Alex aligned himself with Trump, and 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 look, I, I, I could be wrong, and I haven't done like total full research on this but but my instinct is that you know in the relationship between Trump and Alex Jones Alex makes Trump more conspiratorial (laughs) and Trump makes Alex more racist Um, and and, you know I've tried this out a few times on on people who've worked with Alex and I've said you know you've worked with Alex for like 15 years you know there wasn't anti-Muslim stuff in like 2009 2010 and they were like no you know this is this is new you know it's it's alex i i think it's alex trying to curry favor with with trump Mm -hmm. and then there's also paul joseph watson who tweets like white genocide kind of stuff right so Uh, yeah he's another one you know paul joseph watson is is obsessed with 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 muslims um (laughs) and it's like it's it's and he, and he can't, you know, he just can't see that that's what's happening. And and 
I found it very frustrating. You know, again, I, I doubt, and again, I could be wrong, like I don't know every tweet that Paul Joseph Watson's written, but I think if you went back to, you know, even three or four years ago, he wasn't tweeting about Muslims. This, mm. this is becoming like a kind of, you know, like a sort of epidemic. Yeah, and right. it's become difficult for people like me that want to push for progress within the Muslim community. So if I'm do if mm. I'm saying anything critical of Islam, which comes not from a place of hate, but just from a place of wanting to improve things, then mm. I, I get lost with the the extreme anti-Muslim position. So it's very hard to be heard if you want to criticize homophobia in Islam or sexism in Islam in a time where, uh, like, uh, hijabi women are being attacked or whatever. It's very hard to... It's hard to criticize the hijab, for example, or the burqa. Yeah, and you know what would happen? Like, like if, if someone like Paul Joseph Watson, you know, heard that you were willing you know, to be critical about certain, you know, issues within Islam, he, you know, he or Malu, you Jump know, on that, yeah. Stars, yeah, they would love you, you know, they would love you, they'd embrace you, they'd, yeah. they'd, they'd open their arms to you, but then you would find that you're a pawn in their <laughs> much worse game. So this is what's <laughs> happened, right? So I've I've actually actively kept that that kind of scene away from myself because I... I I keep criticizing the Western far right and the Islamic far right. So none of them sort of hijack what Mm -hmm. I'm saying. But there are many people within the ex-Muslim movement who sort of get involved in the Western far right in this way. They start Mm -hmm. off by saying that, oh, it was so hard for me, which is completely legitimate. They said, oh, I escaped. I did this. This was horrible. But then they start getting to Breitbart. They start going to the Canadian version of Breitbart, Rebel Media, and saying, like, there's no place for Islam on the planet and Muslims must be deconverted or, you know, then it starts getting worse and worse. Yeah, and they're making you know they're making a mistake, sort of aligning themselves with those Absolutely. people because those people do not have the same nuanced position. You know, you know this happened to me when I brought out. So you've been publicly shamed. You know, I I, I got approached by Malu Yiannopoulos and, ah. and people like that, saying, you know, can I interview you? And and you know, I could easily have said because I you know this was back, back before he was you know, no. as famous as he is now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I could easily have sort of said yes. You know, I've been invited to be on, like, Breitbart Radio a couple of times, mm. and and I've always, you know, obviously I've always, I've always said no, because, you know, you don't, if, if the whole point of your position is that you're not, you know, you're, you're not part of any faction, mm-hmm. you're... Um, you know, but they tried. But 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 my point is, you know, they they tried to, to lure me into their into their world, and and I'm very glad that I resisted. Yeah, and I, I mean, because then everybody does the same. It it doesn't yeah. resonate either, right? If you're trying to get the left to hear what you have to say, then if mm. you go on Breitbart and say it, nobody's going to take it seriously. Whereas if you sort of retain that credibility, where you're actually not hostile to the left, but you just want to present this criticism. Mm then maybe more yes. people would take it on board. Well, I mean, you'd hope so. I mean, definitely, like, if I had, if I had gone on, you know, Milo Yiannopoulos' podcast, um, that would have been, you know, so many people on the left would have said, aha, I see, exactly, we always knew that this mm. is what John Johnson was secretly like. And, <laughs> but, the fact, but the fact is, is that, you know, I, my, my position is just one of, you know, I just want 
I'm just you know I'm, I'm kind of anti-bullying. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm anti-cruelty, just and I'm anti-stigmatizing. Just and and um, you know wherever that lies, whether whether the bullies are on the right or mm-hmm. on the left. You know. And I actually I, I really appreciate the way that you're able to tell these stories or even go out and you know uh, cover extremists in a way and humanize them without sort of sanitizing them. That's a very hard mm-hmm. line to walk, but you do it really, really well. Well thank you. I I yeah, thank you. It, it it gets harder when the world gets more and more factional. You mm-hmm. know, it's sort of um yeah, it gets harder. But there's so many uh, people that are like pretending to do what you do so well, which is just present a story in a journalistic way. Um, but really, they are just sort of there to normalize um, Milo mm-hmm. Yiannopoulos or Paul Joseph Watson and say that what he's doing is right. But when challenged on it, they'll be like, oh, but I just want to cover them as a journalist. But this is... Yeah, yes, absolutely. And of course, everything's, you know, I mean, the whole power balance has changed too. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so a lot of things have changed. Um, Yeah. But back to um, the butterfly effect. You know, one of my favorite parts of that was um, when you go and talk to these custom porn people. Yes, yeah. That was so sweet. Yeah. it, uh, so basically, it turns out that because of the tech takeover of the porn industry, obviously porn people have to make money in in other ways. And mm-hmm. some, you know, so escorting has has gone up a lot in the valley. Um, but then something more unexpected than that we, we we discovered, which is this world of kind of custom porn, bespoke porn, and that you know many many professional porn people now are making money by, by by making entire porn films for just one viewer. So if you've got a particular, you know, if you've got a desire to see a particular porn film that's, you know, no one else would ever think of making it, um, you can now pay porn people to make it just for you, an entire porn film just for one viewer. Uh, and once, once we got in on that world, we were just obsessed like I could um you know to find you know the just the most unexpected and surprising and you know strangely kind of heartfelt bespoke porn films yeah like you talked about this Norwegian stamp collector and yes uh this this was a man who um has spent 40 years amassing an incredibly valuable book of st- you know, collection of stamps and his custom porn film is to get naked porn women to destroy his stamps uh, by by stamping on them with heels and then throwing them into a fire while oh. chanting burn, burn <laughs> it's, it's because he was depressed in, in Norway we, we finally got to speak to Stamps Man after a year of constantly emailing him uh, he wore him down and he agreed to talk to us and, and basically he was depressed and isolated and he went to see a psychiatrist and when he told the psychiatrist that he was a keen stamp collector the psychiatrist said stamp collecting is a ridiculous hobby uh, <laughs> sounds so terrible so unhealthy I know, I know. So, that's, so that's why he started getting porn stars to destroy his stamps 
Yeah, I remember hearing that, and it was just painful for me to, like, I was like, oh, he spent so long collecting it, and he wants it destroyed. But, I mean, if that's what he wants, that's what he wants. Yeah, and, you know, he really gave the San Fernando Valley something sort of valuable, which was not only lots of stamps, but but, but a mystery. You know, people were so... I didn't put this in the series, and I don't know why I didn't, because it was so funny. Um, but I was with this custom producer, and I said to her, uh, have you ever had a, um, a man ask, to, ask you to destroy his stamps? And she kind of looked at me and said, are you stamps man? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm bespectacled. Um, so... Uh, but that's how mysterious Stance Man was in the valley. I mean, because all the custom producers, you know, talk. It's a, you know, it's a small, it's a small world, the, the porn world, and, right. and uh, so everybody was, everybody knew about Stance Man. So he he really bestowed upon the porn world, you know, this valuable thing. He, he gave them a mystery. Yeah, it's it's so fascinating. Even just thinking about like what what causes certain fetishes to arise in people, you know. Mm. The background of that is really fascinating to me. Yeah. I mean, it's childhood trauma seems to be, you know, a big part of it. Yeah. Um, people get kind of trapped in a moment in their Yeah, in their or life. even just something that was comforting, I think I read somewhere as well, like a woman who was into vomit was talking about how her grandmother would stroke her back like when she was throwing up and that was something that she remembered very positively and now she's into vomit and sex. Wow, gosh. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> our, our inner lives. Yeah. Um, I. That's what I love so much about the custom world is that it just offers this, you know, this window into people's souls. Right, yeah. I mean, when yeah. I was in university... Um, I was here in Toronto and I got into the goth scene and, you know, I went to a few fetish nights. So that was coming from Saudi Arabia. That was really, really interesting Mm -hmm. to get into this whole different world. I mean, of course, there's a lot of black cloaks in Saudi everywhere, but there was nothing fetishy about them. (laughs) Yeah. So tell me, I mean, you've probably talked about this on your podcast a lot, but but you know, tell me about that kind of transition from from sort of realizing that Islam wasn't for you, and then ending up in a in a place where it wasn't a part of your life at all. Um. So, so because I'm Pakistani origin, but I was raised in Saudi Arabia, we didn't actually mm-hmm. mingle with the local Saudis very much because that's kept very segregated. I, I think that they somehow view foreigners as bringing, I don't know, Western immorality or I don't know. They keep the Saudis very separate. So we all had compounds. Not everyone has access to a compound, but I grew up in a very Westernized compound, hence the accent, I guess. Um, You know, I went to a British school and Saudis weren't allowed in my school. They weren't allowed in my compound, which was like a little city. It had its own pool and shops and things. And we could dress however we wanted within the compound, yet we also had to leave every day outside the compound. And that's when we had to wear the abaya, the black cloak, and encounter morality police. And I've seen them hit my mom's ankle with a cane for her headscarf slipping. So, yeah, so I experienced both things. So I actually never was fond of religion. 
Um, and mm-hmm. when I had a Quran teacher come over to read the Quran with me in the afternoons, I'd hop on my bike and like run away from the house. And then my dad would search for me and some, sometimes I'd escape it. But, you know, I was never into it. And my parents, they weren't very forceful about religion either. They're not very religious. They're pretty secular. Mm-hmm. And when you were really young and, and, you know, so you had to like get dressed up in all these kind of crazy clothes to leave the compounds. Could did you could you tell even then that like as soon as you could get out of this you would? Oh yeah. I yeah. I mean one time I started believing in religion briefly was during my O level exams and that was only so that I could pray to get better grades or something. But as soon as that was done, I was done. Right. Yeah, you know, I, I was exactly the same. Um in, in a, you know, obviously a much less dramatic way, but but growing up Jewish, even though we were very liberal Jews, my parents insisted that we went to an Orthodox synagogue. But I don't quite oh. understand why. Yeah, because we weren't we weren't like the other Orthodox Jews. Mm. But then again, not everyone not everyone at the synagogue was like that either. But but yeah, I mean, from from as young as I can remember, I, I was thinking like, shit, I'm I'm, I'm doing this because I'm four and I've got no choice. But, yeah. Like, <laughs> but the minute the minute I have a choice, I'm never going to another synagogue again. And sure enough, that's that's what happened. Yeah, absolutely. Especially yeah. for mosques being gender segregated, that was something that always made mm-hmm. me very like physically angry. Like I could feel my face getting hot. From having yeah. to enter like a back entrance. So mm-hmm. things like that, you know, I, I knew I wasn't going to last in religion. So when I finally told my parents that I'm not into it, they weren't at all surprised. You know, mm-hmm. I hear a lot of stories from less fortunate ex-Muslims whose parents don't support them leaving the faith and then things can get bad they can get thrown out so i'm very sympathetic to that but that's not that's not been my experience so i guess i can also see the other side of having like a a tolerant accepting and loving muslim family which is not something that many people Mm. talk about so yeah yeah yeah, but then, yes. you know, when I got into university, I, you know, dyed my hair pink and purple and made giant spikes out of it and wore dog collars and it kind of went to the <laughs> other end. Um, right. You know, the synagogue I, I went to as a kid, that was gender segregated as well. The, the women oh, really? Had to sit up, yeah, the girls and the women had to sit upstairs, like further away from from the altar, like further from God. Um, oh. I, I know, it was so nuts. Um, when I was about 13, I I, uh, I started going to different Jewish clubs, and there was this really orthodox one called the Jewish Lads Brigade, <laughs> uh, JLB, which is basically like, you know, sort of like being in the Israeli army. Uh, and, uh, you know, we had to do like training. No, when I say in the Israeli army, I'm in Cardiff. Um, mm. But then I discovered um, this really liberal one called RSY, which is Reform Synagogue Youth, mm. where, you know, you could smoke. Um, oh. you, could, you could get off with girls. Wow. And, and it was completely different. And um, so, you know, that was, that was my sort of transition out of... Yeah, out of Judaism because that's why it was just so cool. Uh, it's. Yeah. I remember you. I think it was you were saying to Joe Rogan that you were at a 
jihadi training camp, I believe, and that's where you chose to assert your Judaism? <laughs> yeah, this is a weird moment. So, so I spent a year with an Islamic um, leader, a, a fundamentalist leader um, called um, uh, Omar Bakri Muhammad, mm-hmm. uh, who was the head of, he started off in this group called Hizbut Tahrir. And then oh, he, uh, okay. Yeah, and then he left his book to and formed Al-Muhadjaroon, um, which turned out to be, you know, really sort of violent. Yeah. Um, um, you know, lots of men driving vans into people and so on. <sighs> uh, and suicide bombers, you know, really bad. Um, but but I was with Omar, I was filming Omar for a year just after he left his country and set up Amahadjaroon. And this was pre-9-11, so, you know, there wasn't, you know, anyone near the amount of, um, you know, nobody took him seriously. And, yeah, and he took me to his, to his jihad training camp, which was wow. basically a, a scout hut um, near Gatwick Airport, uh, in a place in Britain called Crawley. And that's where he outed me as a Jew. He'd asked me once or twice over the year if I was Jewish. And I'm, I can't remember what I said, but I presume I said no, because uh, <laughs> I just sort of, what's, what's the point, you know? I, right. Um, so, but then at the jihad training camp, Omar suddenly announced to everybody <gasps> in the room, he said, he said, look at me with the infidel John, who oh is my gosh. A, a Jew. And they all went, ah. And, and I said, um, Surely it's better to be a Jew than an atheist. And I heard somebody in the crowd go, no, it isn't. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting, actually. That's not what I would expect. I thought atheists were the worst of the worst. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, but but and then they all surrounded me, and I remember clearly, like like some of them saying, like I've never met a Jew before. What's it like to be a Jew? And you know, we were like talking, and it wasn't hostile at all. Um, And then I I. You know, I remember leaving and thinking, you know, maybe I've done some good here. And then, you know, in, in the years to come, a whole bunch of people who passed through that very scout hut went on to blow themselves oh. up and so on. Yeah. I know. Um, but it was strange, me sort of asserting, like, <laughs> that, like, you know, choosing a jihad trader can't say, I can actually really relate to that because, you know, as much as I reject Islam, as much as I've, you know, been angry about it or upset about it in this political climate, when it's so mm. hostile seeming to Muslims or people of Muslim background with talk of registries and things like that, bans, mm. I kind of. You know, I kind of want to assert my Muslim background as well and say, well, no. Yeah. Yeah. So I can completely understand that when you're with people that are hostile to who a part of who you are, then. Yeah, absolutely. And and and, and I completely understand why you say that. I've been the Muslim ban and, you know, the continued efforts to try and implement it in some way or another uh, is, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it's the, it's the, it's the single most alarming aspect of the Trump presidency. Mm. You know, the, the, the way that he got himself elected on the back of, you know, anti-Latino and anti-Muslim prejudice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's so ridiculous, you know, I mean, the Muslim ban is so pointless. It's, it's so, it'll, you know, it doesn't um, even include like some of the countries where the, you know, 9-11 hijackers yeah. are from. So, 
because he's got golf clubs there and, right. and, and you know nobody can piss off the Saudi government and it's just pointless it's pointless and ridiculous yeah. and, and and you know what and I think probably the reason why I feel um especially like personally I feel kind of especially upset about it I think it's twofold I think firstly it's because I think Jews and Muslims are temperamentally in general very similar mm. um like I, I tend to get on really well with with Muslims, and I think it's because we just are sort of similar, so nebbishly and thoughtful and so on. Um, and also, I'm an I'm an immigrant to America. I've been here five years, mm. and 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 I came to America with all the privileges possible. You know, I had money, I had all the right papers, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, and it was still really hard. You know, mm-hmm. even even with with every privilege going for me, it was I, I found the transition incredibly hard, and and you know I was really homesick and it was painful, and 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 so you know when I compare you know that to the way that undocumented immigrants come here, it must be you know a thousand times harder, and they just want to you know the DACA kids just want to make a life for themselves yeah. and they work so much I've met so many like I, I give lots of talks at colleges and I've met you know lots of dreamers um, and without wanting to sort of generalise they tend to work much harder than you know than than people who were born here because mm. they've got and and they're the ones being punished mm-hmm. yeah. yeah can't say I disagree with any of that I mean it is pretty mm-hmm. alarming what's what's happening. Yeah. Trump has started like a whole sort of new reality where every day I find myself asking, like, how is this? How is this for real? How is this? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you wrote the um, psychopath test. I don't want to ask an obvious question, but. Well, actually, I, you know what? I, I, well, the psychopath test is kind of a cautionary tale to not diagnose people <laughs> from, from a psychopath. But I actually doubt, even even saying that, I doubt Donald Trump is a psychopath. Oh, yeah? I think, you know, yeah, psychopaths tend to be like empty of emotion. They're like, like proper high-scoring psychopaths. They're like mm. kind of empty shells. Oh, yeah, he gets angry at a lot of people. Yeah, and psychopaths get angry, it's true. But don't you sort of get the sense that, that Trump's anger comes from, comes from you know, emotional damage as opposed to an absence of emotions? Um, yeah, sometimes I do get that sense. But sometimes I feel like he's a cardboard cutout of a human, like operating mm. on, I don't know, just trying to mimic what human right, well, emotion is supposed to look like well that's that's the kind of definition of a psychopath um, um but i'm not you know as i say the psychopath yeah. is definitely a caution tale to yeah, not yeah. do that so. of course but yeah. that is the definition of a psychopath i mean you know the way that they sort of mimic they yeah. don't have emotions of their yeah. own so they mimic people's emotions yeah i mean other times he just like he can't control himself on twitter so that's obviously something to mm-hmm. think about it's not empty it's not devoid of emotion i think yeah but it's true that you know psychopaths do lash out like they don't have many emotions but anger and you know kind of impulsive anger is is an emotion that they have Mm. um but they just don't have many other emotions Mm. you know one of the items on the checklist is shallow affect you know Mm -hmm. and that's kind of what it means yeah Mm. that is that that's interesting (laughs) yeah i think so um so do, what, do you think that 
porn moving to streaming platforms was sort of inevitable regardless of Fabian or yes I think it would have happened anyway um it may not have happened you know Fabian had a particularly um I guess I don't know I mean ruthless is the word I was like you know edging towards a business plan mm. um where he you know he he gave the world a porn hub pre-existed fabian but not not by more than a few months so oh really fabian. okay so yeah he just bought it uh, off someone yeah he bought it off these two brothers canadian um, i believe yeah but they're middle eastern actually and oh. and yeah and they're I know their parents didn't know that they were running <laughs> Pornhub. Um, so whenever their parents came to visit them, they had to like shout out a code word, and everybody would turn off their computers. Um, and and then Fabian uh, bought the company from them, and then got this bank loan to expand. And so all these companies, all these like mom and pop porn production companies that were suffering because of Pornhub, you know, um, he then bought at a cut price. So he kind of gutted the companies mm. and then all his business model gutted the companies and then he went in and bought up the companies at cut price. So so he just sort of took over porn, you know, in, in kind of overnight. And it's interesting you say that he got like a three hundred and sixty something million dollar loan. Meanwhile, banks judge porn stars and sometimes don't give them bank accounts. Yes, it's it's very difficult. A few different porn people have told me this. It's very difficult to get. Uh, it's certainly certainly difficult to get a kind of business checking account if you're a porn performer. Um, That's but, so strange. In twenty seventeen, yeah. I know, I know, right? We we still got you know who we should consider reputable and who we should consider disreputable or wrong. <laughs> we, um, you know, these kind of sweet porn performers who are just doing these little cottage industries. Yeah. Finding it hard to get a bank account. Whereas Fabian, you know, got a $362 million loan to build an empire which was based in part on the handling of those women's stolen porn. Because right. that's because Pornhub is a depository of pirated content. Right, right. Yeah. So have they adapted to like finding a way, like can they sell these videos up front to Pornhub or something? Yeah, they've got like there's there's definitely a kind of relationship forming between Pornhub and and sort of young up and coming stars. Uh, they're making a fraction of of what they would have mm. made in the pre Pornhub days. There's this woman called Janice Griffiths, um, who's a really big successful porn star, and Mike Quasar, this director who we became really good friends with. Um, told me that, you know, Janice Griffiths came in just because he hates Pornhub, so she came in wearing a Pornhub t-shirt just to annoy him. <laughs> and um, and she said, you know, I got I just got a check from Pornhub for like, you know, $3,000 for like, you know, um, because of the sort of affiliate site that she has with Pornhub. Um, and Mike said to her, you know, and how many downloads was that? And she was like, and I'm making up these figures, but, you know, she was like 300 million. And um, Fabian was like, you know, 15 years ago, you've got $50,000 for that. And now you're happy with $2,500 from Pornhub. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So so the answer is, you know, they are finding ways to monetize a relationship with Pornhub, but it's a fraction of what they Mm -hmm. would have made. Mm -hmm. But then again, that's, you know, that's the Apple Music model as well, isn't it? And Spotify. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. 
Yeah, I really wish maybe the time will come. Like if if I I, I subscribe to Apple Music, if Apple Music did this thing where they said, you know, you can pay nine ninety nine a month, or you can pay double that, and all of the extra money goes straight to the artists. Mm-hmm. Um, I I I would sign up for that, and and I'm sure a lot of people would. And mm-hmm. Maybe one day that's the way it'll turn. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, I think they will find that's just how it happens, right? People learn to survive and adapt. So Mm -hmm. they will find a way maybe to monetize it more effectively or find another way to make money. I don't know, merchandise or, I don't know, private chats or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, piracy and porn, it goes back quite a while i mean pakistan had a huge porn piracy problem there was like a three-story shopping mall called rainbow center that Mm -hmm. was dedicated to porn like eden pakistan it was a like a it was an unspoken sort of secret and women didn't often go in there from what i recall and um, it got raided eventually and shut down, but it's funny to see these um, hypocrisies in those societies too. Like even when Google released those numbers, I think Pakistan was on the top of the list for the most uh, porn searched or something. When when there's such restriction around sexuality and even gender segregation, that a lot of people's first encounters with sex is with like I don't know same sex. Uh, encounters just Mm. out of necessity not because of their orientation or even cousins unfortunately that's what right actually my friend mona chalabi is doing a a big thing on um on cousins marrying in in islam you should talk to mona she's so great okay yeah, yeah definitely I was watching this video about how video cassettes killed porn theaters. So once they had access to and it reminded me of your project a little bit because I imagine when the video cassette was created, then people stopped right. going to porn theaters. So I guess this is sort of the cycle that, that these things go through and this isn't the yeah, first time. Although I think yes, although I think there's a difference with, with this part of the cycle, which is kind of Historically, it's it's said anyway that historically, um, porn has always been on the forefront of of technological changes. So, mm. you know, video cassettes, sixteen millimeter, and so on. Porn yeah. was always there right at the beginning, but that's not the case with the internet. Like porn dropped the ball when mm. it came to the internet, yeah. and and YouTube was around, you know, for quite a long time before Pornhub and. And that was sort of part of the reason for the downfall, I think. Like, like there weren't any great tech people in, in porn. Um, and so when Fabian came along with all of his tech expertise, uh, he just, you know, it was like... Was able to was swoop like, in. Yeah, he could just swoop in. It was like there was no one there trying it. All these other people were... You know, they'd, they'd kind of got, you know, drunk with their own success. You know, they were making a lot of money from DVDs and, and you know, paywalls and so on. Mm-hmm. And they were kind of ignoring YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, if they'd been a little bit more forward thinking, you know, they might have thwarted Fabian. Yeah, well, they better get on like hologram porn now. 
<laughs> yeah, well, it's VR porn, but that's not going to happen, is it? Nothing's going to come with that. No. Do you think? <laughs> I don't know. No. Maybe. Well, I love, I mean, I was at TED this year and they had this like amazing VR thing where you get to like be in Ghostbusters and and it was just so great. You know, like, for the 15 minutes I was I was doing it, it was just so great. But it still felt like something that you go to like Disney World mm. to do, you know, as opposed to something that could really take people out of your life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it does feel like that. I've tried it as well, but you never mm. know. You never know. <laughs> but anyways, thank you so much for taking the time to be on here and talk about your really interesting projects. Thank you. It was really good talking to you. I'll, I'll, will you send me um, the link to the show? Because I'd really love to, I'd love, I'd love to listen to some of the other ones that you've done. Awesome. Yeah, I definitely will. Cool. Hey, well, great talking to you. <laughs> you too. Take care. And you. Bye. Bye. All right. Hope you enjoyed the show. You can find John Ronson on Twitter at John Ronson, and you can find The Butterfly Effect on Audible. Do check it out. Thanks for listening to another episode of Polite Conversations. You can support this podcast by sharing the shit out of it, making some noise about it, or contributing via Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes. No Ian Mangoes. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at NiceMangoes. If you want to make a one-time donation instead of a monthly Patreon one, you can do so via PayPal, nicemangoes.blog at gmail.com. Remember, no E in mangoes. If you've got an interesting story and would potentially like to be a guest, you can email me there too. A special thanks to Dylan Beck for theme music, sound, and production help.